Good morning. How you guys doing? Good, good. Hey, so uh, this week is actually a Dallas Cowboys bye week. Anybody a football fan in here? Sweet, sweet. So Jake actually gave me permission to go to 1 o'clock today since the Cowboys aren't playing. So you can thank him for my long message. So I'm just kidding. Um, Hey, that's why you hired me, Jake, (laughs) because of my great character. Hey, Summer, I just want to say what you articulated as far as um, this idea of being heard and earning that right um, to be heard uh, through serving, I thought was was great and and spot on, and um, I think that's something that, that we need to hear. And so, hey, I'm thankful to be with you guys. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm the college pastor. Uh, here at Midtown, um, and I've been like low-key stalking Midtown slash Hill Country UT for years, and so I'm super excited to be on staff and, um, and to be with you guys today. So last week, uh, Jake uh, talked to you guys about this idea of the birth of a movement, and really this idea of a beautiful moment, or beautiful movement that we actually see in Acts 3, and the reason that it's beautiful is that we see this healing in Acts 3 of uh, this man that was born lame. And what Jake talked about is it's, it's actually a beautiful movement because Jesus heals him, or Peter heals him um, through the power of Jesus. And he heals him, but he doesn't only just heal him for, for, for with really no purpose, but he heals him in order to make what was broken whole. And then Peter gets into this message and actually explains the spiritual side of what happened in a very physical sense. It talks about this idea of the spiritual brokenness that we all have and this need for wholeness. And in Acts 4, what we're going to see is that Peter and John are brought in for the message that they preach. And these religious leaders have a response to Peter and John. And then in response to their response with Peter and John, we're actually going to see their courage. And see maybe some attributes that we can actually take on ourselves to live courageous lives. But before we do that, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get into it. God, thank you so much that you give us spaces like this to gather, to hear your word, to worship you. God, I pray that as we talk about courage today, that you would show us what that looks like, that we would see the courage of Peter and that we'd be inspired to live courageous lives ourselves. God, I pray that anything that I say that is not of you would fall on deaf ears. But anything that I say that is of you, God, I pray that it would be heard and be received and welcomed. God, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen. On September 27th of 2009, the Manila Philippines actually had the worst flooding that they've had in 40 years through the tropical storm Katsana, if you guys remember that tropical storm. But in the midst of this, there was actually 140 people that died in Manila in the midst of this, the flooding that occurred because of this tropical storm. But it actually could have been much worse. There was actually a young construction worker, an 18-year-old construction work- worker named Momar. And Momar, um, he's just a normal kid. And on this day, September 27th of 2009, Momar is in his house. And it was raining pretty hard, but... During this time in the Philippines, it's really not that uncommon for them to experience this type of rain. 
And so Wilmar, he's watching TV, just hanging out with his family. Until the, all of a sudden, the river bursts bank and the floodwaters come up near their house. And so Wilmar and his father realize pretty quickly that they need to do something or they're going to die. And so Wilmar is actually a pretty strong swimmer. And so his brothers, his three brothers, actually tied some string around his waist. And so Wilmar took each of his family members and tied a string around their waist. And he carried them up, swam them up to higher ground, to safety. And after he was done getting his four siblings and his parents, he looked down in his village and realized that there was other friends of his and neighbors of his that actually stranded on their roofs. So he decided it was not okay for them to die, and so he swam back into this river and went and saved one, each of them one by one until he had saved 28 people. And Wilmar, he was exhausted, lying on his back on the higher ground, tired, shivering. Then he heard this voice, this screaming voice, this mother and her baby that were screaming as they were on this styrofoam box flowing down the river, screaming for help. And so Melmar, although he was tired and cold, decided that he would try to go save two more people. So he dives back into the water. He gets this mother and this baby as soon as they fall off of the styrofoam box. And he grabs them and he pulls them in, but he really doesn't have the strength to actually get them back in. So the other villagers see this, and so they, they join in, and they kind of create this link until so they can get far enough out to Walmart where they can grab the baby and the mother. And they do. The baby and the mother are safe, but Walmart actually doesn't have the strength to save himself. And so a few days later, they actually found his body at the end of the river with 28 other people. Later at his funeral, Minchi actually... Uh, Said, she was like, I knew that we were going to die until this young man came and saved us. And then his father said this, his father Samuel, Melmar's father, said it was typical of Wilmar to do what was good. It was in his heart. It was typical of him to give his life away for the good of others. And there's something about stories like Wilmar's that do something inside of us. There's something about courage that actually inspires us. That leads us to this longing to live a meaningful life. And what we see is that if we are going to live meaningful lives, it's actually going to require us to live with courage. And what we also discover is that in order to live a courageous life, we're actually going to have to make some sacrifices as well. And so that's what we're going to see today inside of this story of Peter and John. We're going to see their courage that's notable to not only themselves, but to their uh, physical enemies, these religious leaders. Um, and so I want you guys to turn with me to Acts 4. And so we're going to actually dive into the story of Peter and John, but we're going to need a little bit of context before we get to, get to their courage. So starting in... <clears throat> In Acts 4, verses 1, it says this. And I'm going to pause and just explain some things as we go. But Acts 4, 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So here quickly, we're introduced to a few characters into this story that are, that are important. First, we see the religious leaders 
We see the Sadducees. We see the priest. We see the captain of the temple guard. And then we see Peter and John as well. Then we see another thing. We see that they're greatly, dis- they're greatly disturbed. And they're greatly disturbed by two things. One, the fact that these, these two men are actually teaching, which was actually the job of the religious leaders at the time. You needed some type of an authority to teach. But then the other thing that they were uh, upset about or disturbed by was that they are actually proclaiming the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. And so these Sadducees, just a side note, they actually didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so the fact that Peter and John were actually talking about the resurrection of the dead created all sorts of theological issues for them. So they were upset. Not knowing what to do, in verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So they weren't throwing them in jail necessarily because they had done anything wrong, but they wanted to actually investigate what they were talking about. And so in verse 4, it says, But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And so men means that there's probably more, right? There's women and children. Probably more than 5,000 that had, that had grown to believe. And so this is a pretty short time period. So 5,000 is a lot. But if we're looking at, you know, the city of Austin, 5,000 out of 1.8 million in the, in the Austin metro area or more is not that many. But it, in this context, in this time, in Jerusalem, this actually would have been a huge deal. In fact, the population, the Jewish population at this time was probably anywhere between 25,000 to 250,000 people. And most scholars believe that it's actually on the lower end of that, anywhere from 25,000 to 100,000. So if 5,000 men all of a sudden start believing in Jesus, this is going to create a stir in the community. This is really, truly the birth of a movement. So what's happening here is that Peter and John are actually disrupting the status quo. And the religious leaders, considering this is the way that they make their, their living, are not, are not liking this. And so the religious leaders, in verse 5, it says, The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. So again, we get introduced to some more characters, some more religious leaders. And these characters are actually really important to know who they are. Because these, Annas and Caiaphas, it says that uh, Annas was the high priest, which actually Caiaphas was. Um, but they were actually kind of co-high priests. Don't have time to get into it today, but that's the way it was. But they were actually the same high priest that oversaw the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Because if you think about this, this actually Pentecost, which is just probably a matter of weeks before we get to Acts 4, was actually only 50 days before Jesus died. So think about that. So, so the same people that the Peter and John are about to stand trial in front of were the same people that killed Jesus, which makes what, what happens next uh, all the more real. So it says in verse 8, it says, Then Peter... Um, sorry, in verse 7 it says, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Basically, what authority do you have to speak and to heal people? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. 
If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, which is literal because they did crucify Jesus, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Do you see it? Can you feel the tension? These are literally the people that sent Jesus to the cross. So Peter's calling them out. And then in verse 11, it says, Jesus, the stone you builders rejected. This picture in Psalm 118.22, we get this picture of these builders who have a stone, and they look at the stone and they go, this stone is meaningless. So they cast it to the side. It goes on, it says, which this stone has become the cornerstone. And then in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which man must be saved, or we must be saved. Which is a verse that, that many of us use today to talk about the gospel and the exclusivity of Christianity. But in this time, in this place, Peter and John saying this is crazy. He's basically saying, this is the Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for. There's no one else coming after this. No one else is coming for you. This is the one. And yet you have discarded him as meaningless. So they're probably not too happy. But here's what I want you guys to hear today. God's offer of salvation, freedom, and life is offered to everyone, even to the people who actually killed Jesus. So I hope you see the grace here. Peter and John are standing here, the same ones who actually killed Jesus, and going, the door is still open for you. That there's nothing, nothing that you can do, as Romans 8 says, that could separate you from the love of God. There's nothing too bad that you've done that God will not accept you back. So that's just a side note, but I think it's an important one. But after Peter finishes his speech, we see the reaction of these religious leaders. In Acts 4.13, this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, the leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The first thing that these religious leaders, first thing that they notice about Peter and John is their courage. And the next thing that they notice is that these men, these were fishermen. These were unschooled, ordinary men. And they speak with such authority. And so they took note. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. And so I want to spend some time today looking at what are the attributes, attributes that, that specifically that Peter possessed that allowed him to be so courageous that it stuck out in these moments. And really, this courage for Peter is newfound. It's a newfound courage, right? Because just two months earlier, 
when Jesus was standing before these same people, before the Sanhedrin, Peter actually wasn't too far off, if you remember this story. We get this story of Jesus denying Peter through, you know, all throughout the, all the Gospels. And so when Jesus was put on trial, he was actually brought into the Sanhedrin. He was brought into really the, the high priest, into his house, into his home. And it says that Peter actually followed him into the courtyard. And in that courtyard is where Peter, right outside of where Jesus is about to be proclaimed guilty, he is actually denying Jesus three times. And so I can only imagine what Peter's feeling like in this moment. And Peter, you know, in this moment, Peter is... You know, I can only imagine Peter sitting in jail, right, the night before he gives a speech. He's sitting in jail, and he's got to be replaying this idea of, of his, of the first time that he denied Jesus, knowing he's going to go before the Sanhedrin, knowing that he was about to step into a similar moment. Because that moment for Peter was actually, had to be the worst moment in his life, the moment that he denied Jesus. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he wept bitterly after he denied Jesus. It had to be an uncomfortable moment for Peter to be back into the same place just a few months later. And so my first point for us today is that if we're going to live a courageous life, that those who are courageous are willing to step in to uncomfortable moments. And so for Peter, he's willing to step into this uncomfortable moment to see what, what's going to happen next. And for us, what does that look like? What does an uncomfortable moment look like? Maybe it's a conversation that you need to have with a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a roommate about an area of conflict. Or maybe it's a conversation with a close friend that doesn't know Jesus about who he is. Or maybe like Peter, it's confronting a painful moment from your past. In fact, I think for most of us, the most uncomfortable moments in our life are those that also cause us the most pain. And so for many of us, we choose not to step into these uncomfortable moments because we want to avoid the pain that comes with the association of them. And yet there's a tension because what I found in life is that the most uncomfortable moments are actually the ones that can be the most meaningful as well. And so, what are we going to do except step into these moments? In fact, the author Brene Brown, she says it this way. How many of you guys, I, I've been in a few of your houses, know, and you guys know who Brene Brown is, but how many of you guys know who Brene Brown is? She's an author, right? Okay, quite a few. So she actually uh, studied at UT. She got a master's in social work. Um, she writes a lot of books on shame and vulnerability, a book called Daring Greatly. Um, and then uh, she's written other ones uh, like Rising Strong. Um, great. She's a, she's a Christian, but writes from a secular perspective, but talks a lot about her journey and her faith with God. Um, and talks a lot about this idea of shame and vulnerability, which are really close to the heart of God and to, I think, the gospel. And so she's... She's an author that I think that all of us, we, we have this rare moment, her being from Texas, being from UT, I think we have this rare moment 
to use her material to really talk about these conversations about God with people that might not know him or might not even want to talk about him. And so anyways, that's my Brene Brown plug for you. But author Brene Brown, she, she says it this way about embracing these uncomfortable moments and about not avoiding pain. She says, owning our story, both the good and the bad, can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Let me repeat that. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our, vulnerability, our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy. The, experience that, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only, and hear this, only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. Let me repeat that. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. See, I think for many of us, we do not realize what we give up when we make current and future decisions based on avoiding the pain of our past. Yes, we avoid the pain, but we also miss out on things like love, belonging, connection, and joy. And I think we also miss out on the potential beautiful moments that God has for us. See, if Peter avoids this uncomfortable moment, he misses out on the beautiful moment of redemption that God has for them, for, for him. And for us, I want to ask this question. What beautiful moments have we missed out on because we've avoided the pain of our past? See, Peter's lasting memory of the Sanhedrin is not that his cowardly denial of Jesus his lasting memory of the Sanhedrin now is his courageous defense of Jesus and who he is. So it's not only Peter's willingness to step into uncomfortable moments that allows him to be courageous, but it's also his commitment to depend on God, not his talent. So the last part of verse 13 says uh, that they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus, although that they were unschooled and ordinary men. And so these religious leaders, they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized their background, and were bewildered. Like, how did this happen? How did these men speak with such authority? And at verse 8 of Acts 4, going back, I actually think that gives us further insight into what led to their courage. It says that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Acts 2, this moment at Pentecost, was actually this seminal moment for Peter, right? This transformative moment that changed his life. When the Holy Spirit came down on him and he was filled with the Spirit, something changed for Peter in that moment. And he steps into this person that God had created him to be all along because he's filled with the Spirit what we see throughout the scriptures is that those who trust and depend on God, not their own talent, seem to have the most courage. So if we look back throughout the history of, of Israel, we've, if you look at the story of David, right? David and Goliath. David steps into this moment depending on God when 
there's a lot of other people that heard what Goliath said in that moment. When Goliath was, was defying the armies of the living God and David said, that's not okay. Or not only David did this, but also we see this with Joshua and Caleb. There's 12 men that go out to look and spy on Canaan, which is the land that God had promised the Israelites. And Joshua and Caleb are the two that come back with this positive report. And they say, let's go get this land. Let's go take it and seize it because of who our God is. Or we see this story of, of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who goes up and attacks the Philistines while his father and the rest of this army stay back. He says, perhaps the Lord will be with us and he'll save us. See, all of these men have this trust in God, this dependence on God and not their own talent. And they see God do extraordinary things through them. I remember, uh, for those of you guys that don't know, I actually used to work at a church called Hill Country Bible Church, Austin, uh, which is one of the churches that helped plant Hill Country UT and Midtown as well. And one of the things that you first do when you go on staff there is you actually go through this uh, it's like 20-week discipleship class called DWAP, Discipleship with a Purpose. And so you usually have an older staff member that takes you through it. And so I drew the short straw, so I got the lead pastor as the guy that took me through it. And um, so he, uh, which he's great. He's awesome. His name's Tim Hawks. And uh, so Tim, like the second lesson we're going through, it's like on dependence on God or, or something like that. I just remember we talked about dependence on God. And one of the questions was like, how, how are you doing with depending on God? And as everyone went around the group, there's about four of us there, and as everyone went around the group and talked about how great they were doing with dependence on God, I had this overwhelming sense of like, man, I'm not doing well in that area. So I have this moment where I'm like, man, am I going to lie and just be like, man, I'm doing awesome, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and luckily for me, and telling you this story today, that's not what I did. And so I chose the other round. I was like, man, I'm going to be honest. But I decided like, if I'm going to be honest and vulnerable, I'm going to go all in on my honesty. And so I was going to position this, this thing in a way that, you know, Tim, Tim might not be so harsh to me. And so I'm like, yeah, I, I just, I'm terrible at depending on God. In fact, like, and I know this now, it comes out so arrogant. I'm like, man, I just depend on my own, like, talents and strengths and the resources that God has given me um, in ministry. And, like, that's how I get by. Like, not the thing to say, like, your month into the job, just, you know, just so you know. Not that I need to tell you. And, you know, I'm just hoping for some sympathy from, you know, my peers and from, from Tim in this moment. And those of you that know Tim, some of you may, like, you know, this didn't go the way I was hoping. He's not a very sensitive man. Um, and so Tim looks at me straight in the eye. He goes, well, Josh, as long as you depend on what's natural, you'll never get to see what God can do in the supernatural. And it was like a... It was like an arrow going straight to my heart. And it's not what I wanted to hear in that moment, but it's what I needed to hear. And it's what has rang in my ear all these years. And I wish I could tell you, like, man, I've, I've been batting a thousand on depending on God in my daily life. But I'd be lying. And it's still a struggle for me to depend on God. But it's something that I strive to do every day. And and I know that there's moments in my past and probably even moments of the last few or the last six years since that moment 
that I have missed out on these moments that God has for me because I've been depending on what's natural instead of what's supernatural. And, but on the other side of it, there, and there, there is this other part of like some of us like think we're so awesome that we don't need God. But then there's some of us, like myself a lot of, a lot of times, where we actually don't think we're that awesome. And we look at ourselves and we go, man, I lack the education or the knowledge. I don't know how to share the gospel or I don't have the right words. I don't know the Bible like Jake or Justin. Or I'm not as relational as Brad Laws. And so we discount ourselves and we take ourselves out of these moments that God might have for us. And I think we see that, again, if we look back at these stories of David and Goliath, I think we see this in the scripture as well. See, David said yes to fighting Goliath, but there was a whole army that said no. They heard what, they, what Goliath was saying, and they saw Goliath. Like, this task is just too big. And even when David said yes, there was people that were like, you're an idiot. You shouldn't do that. You're going to die. Right? Or Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb said yes, but there was 10 men that said no. And they came back and they said, man, that land is awesome. It's exactly what, how you described it. But those people there, they're really, really big. And there's a lot of them. We're going to die. And all of Israel, when they came back, when those 10 came back, they were like, God, why did you lead us here? Just, we, we see the land, it looks awesome. And you're just going to torture us on the outside. Right? They saw their situation. They said, the situation is too big. Right? And if it wasn't for Joshua and Caleb stepping back up and going, no, we will take this land, they might have stayed outside the whole time and not got to experience Canaan. Can you imagine if Peter, sitting in that jail cell, was like, Man, the last time I was here, I denied Jesus. So who am I? I'm just an unschooled, ordinary fisherman. My leader is gone. Can you imagine if he didn't step up in this moment? He never would have got this redemptive, beautiful moment that God had for him all along in the supernatural. So the question for us is what supernatural moments does God have waiting for us if we choose to depend on him instead of our circumstances? Maybe you have coworkers that are longing for belonging and acceptance and purpose. They're longing to know what is right and what is true and to make sense of the world around them. And God and they are just waiting for you to step into that moment to share the gospel with them and tell them the good news that there is one that has come for them. 
Or maybe for some of you guys, you guys are sitting in relationships that are not healthy. Or you have these areas of conflict, this enmity between you and the people around you. Whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, roommate, or a spouse. And the, the situation just seems too big. And yet all you need to do is just step into the moment. Trusting God and just seeing what happens. But it's not only depending on God that allows Peter to be courageous or stepping into uncomfortable moments. It's Peter and John's determination to do what's right no matter the cost. And so moving on in verse 14, it says, But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Moving on in verse 18, it says, Then they called them in again and commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is what we call lawyered in our vernacular. Peter and John get them. In verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Verse 22, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So Peter and John, right, have this moment with the Sanhedrin. They say, hey, don't say anything else. And then they, you know, they give them these threats, right? And they, these are like real threats, like, we're going to kill you, right? And they did kill people, right? This is the story of Stephen that we're going to read in a few weeks. So they threaten them. They say, don't speak any more about this name Jesus. And Peter and John go, but what should we do? Should we listen to God or to you? You be the judges. And so Peter and John, they're willing to do what's right no matter the cost. And for Peter, there will be a cost. We find out later that he is actually crucified upside down for his faith. That him continuing to talk about Jesus cost him his life. And for us, for many of us, following Jesus isn't going to cost us our life, but it will cost us something. It will cost us something. And what is that something? For some of us, it's going to cost us maybe our preferences, the things that we prefer in life, that we prefer to do. For others of us, it's going to cause us, we're going to have to give up some control. Maybe if you're a college student, maybe you have to give up some control about what your future looks like. Maybe approach life with an open palm instead of a closed fist. 
For others of us, we might have to give up this idea of being right. In fact, I think for, for many of us, we actually create our relationships around those who agree with us on what's right. I think this is a lot of how Christianity works, right? We find people that think the same things about us, about these varying issues, or just the fact that Jesus is God, and we become friends with them. But those are the only people that we become friends with. This is how politics kind of works, right? Those who are conservative kind of hang out with conservatives, and they agree with each other, and they high-five each other and hang out. And liberals do the same thing, right? Most of us, we actually center our relationships around what we find to be true in life. Which causes a lot of issues with this idea of living out the mission of God and being like Jesus. Because when you look at the scriptures, that's not how Jesus did things, right? It says that he was all throughout when he talks about the crowds he was with and the people that he ate dinner with. He ate dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was perfect. He wasn't a tax collector or a sinner. And he also hung out in the same building with Pharisees and teachers of the law who just judged people and looked down on them. Jesus wasn't like that either. And so if we are going to live out this idea of being courageous and following Jesus, we have to give up our desire to be right all the time. And creating relationships around those who agree with us on what's right. We have to be willing to step into relationships with those that disagree with us on things. This is the point of the gospel, by the way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who had no sin, he who was right, became sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You could also say, for him who was right, became wrong for us. So that in him, we might become right. So if we're going to emulate Jesus, we have to give up this idea of being right. But I also hear this. I don't want to shame you either. And so if you don't want to hear anything else from me today, I want you to hear there's no shame, there's no guilt for things that we might not be willing to give up. That God's going to love you the same whether you give up everything in your life and you die for him or whether you give up nothing. His love for you does not change. But the reality is you may miss out on moments, supernatural, beautiful, redemptive moments that God has for you if you step into a courageous life. And see, this is kind of the history of Hill Country UT and Midtown, right? This idea of a courageous life. See, I haven't been with you guys for that long, but I've been stalking you for a long time, like I said before. And so I know a lot of your stories, some from you guys, but a lot from other people because a lot of people talk about you guys and the sacrifices that you guys are willing to make. And I see names up in our offices. We have like this, these, the names of people who moved move down here to start Hill Country UT. And I know those names and I know their stories and I know the church that they came from, Hill Country Bible Church Austin, because I was there. 
And so these people with young children decided to give up this like crazy awesome Disneyland of a children's ministry and a super awesome student ministry for not really much of one at all. Because they decided that it was more important for a few college students to hear about Jesus than to have their own preferences or their own comforts. So they sacrificed so that we could be sitting here today. And then I also know the stories about Midtown. I was actually thinking of Summer and Phil when I was preparing this talk. And other couples like them who were challenged by Jake and others to sell their homes and to leave their comforts. And homes in Pflugerville are a lot bigger than homes in High Park. And yet they sold their homes and their potential for their kids to get these awesome educations to come down and move here where they can still get an awesome education. But it's a sacrifice. And it's a lot different living in Pflugerville than High Park, if you didn't know. And so this church is built on people who have lived courageous lives, who have done what is right no matter the cost who have said we're going to depend on God, not our, not our situation or our circumstances or our talents, and who have been willing to wade into uncomfortable circumstances and uncomfortable moments. And as we transition into a time of communion, I want us to reflect on the courage of Jesus. Because the reality is, is there any more uncomfortable moment than the one where Jesus goes to the cross? Is there anyone who depended on God more than the one who's willing to die for someone else? And is there anyone more courageous than the one, or is there anything more costly than the one who's willing to give up their life? As the scriptures say, no greater love has anyone than this, that they would give up their life for their friends. And Jesus went, even went beyond that. He gave up his life for those who didn't even love him, these religious leaders in this story. So, there is none that is more courageous than Jesus. There's no act that took more courage than the one that we remember today. So as we take communion, may, may we be inspired to emulate the courage of Jesus, stepping into our own beautiful, supernatural moments that God has waiting for us. This communion table is open to anyone who has received Jesus and has asked for the forgiveness of their sins. If that is some, something that you haven't done yet, my prayer is that this would be a moment that you could step into and say, this is the moment where I've decided that I'm going to follow Jesus and step into the courage that God has for me and into the supernatural moments that he longs for us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much 
that you displayed courage to us, that you exemplified it for us. Jesus, I thank you that you went to the cross, that you were willing to step into uncomfortable moments and to depend on your Father. God, that you are, Jesus, that you are willing to do what's what's right no matter the cost, and it was a cost. Jesus, may we emulate you with the lives that we live. May we emulate your courage and step into the moments that you have for us. God, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen.